Handsome, bro. I think he's right. getting more handsome Thank looking. Thank you. Is, that is like, so our hard. viewers don't get to enjoy this, but Thank Dan has so become much. quite svelte since the, the beginning of the uh, the, the <laughs> back view. It's <laughs> been quite a journey. Thank you both for acknowledging it. <laughs> uh, so my name is James David. Uh, my full name is James David Treadwell the Third. There you go. Can't forget that, man. Can't forget that. Is that. Classy. I mean, I'm yeah. Uh, my friends call me James David. Most people in Los Angeles was introduced to me as James David. Um, but you do you have a uh, you have a musical pseudonym I as well. Do you have a musical? Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's Davy. Okay. You're from where? I'm from New Jersey. And land of the Jers. Then Carter take State. us through. <laughs> <laughs> take us through where how James David from Jersey got to where you are now. My dad, uh, his father's from North Carolina, so you get this Southern sensibility. My grandfather was, um, if I'm correct, he was in the Korean War. Like six, seven, manly, manly dude. There's like, you know, had seven kids. Uh, and so my dad was raised in Newark, New Jersey, which is like a really tough area. Um, but at the, I think he was born in like 1956. But like that, that was the year that like Martin Luther King marched through Newark. And so like my dad, in his essence, he has that like Southern understanding because of my grandfather. My grandfather is just like, you work hard very manly loved baseball loved sports um and so my dad has worked since he was 15 years old you know um, my dad's a very hard worker he values hard work okay then fast forward to my mother who um she'll be okay with me saying this is like my grandmother and my grandfather on her side were were upper middle class and for the you know african-american family in the like the 60s that's a that's a pretty big deal so i feel like my mom kind of grew up very sheltered very integrated in mm. uh this part of town called bridgeton new jersey which is very it, i wouldn't say it's wealthy but it's like you know upper middle class um and then my dad so the combination of them two are just very different mm. um my mom is is very um like generous and kind and loving and loves new experience and my dad is he values routine and hard work so what's your mom do for work so my mom growing up my mom worked in marketing at campbell suit oh no yeah, way she used to, yeah she used to work in marketing campbell suit my dad she uh, killed it man everybody's heard of campbell everyone's yeah, heard of campbell suit. yeah well i mean that's what she says you know how parents say like what they do but it was it sounds rude but it was like a long time ago so you're like is that still a job doesn't a computer do that at this point? That's kind of, I'm pretty sure that's, that was my mom's job. Um, but when I was young, so my dad was like basically the youth pastor of a church. What and, denomination? Uh, Non-denominational. Oh. Which is like, let's be honest, non-denominational is really Assemblies of God. Like it's a charismatic, <laughs> but like. Oh, I beg to do Okay, that, here's sir. the thing. It's like, <laughs> I say that because it's like the church I grew up in, like tongues like laying hands okay so it's charismatic it's charismatic it's charismatic, it's charismatic. Yeah. my non-denominational church none of that shit i think it, See, so non-denominational just being that they didn't have like a larger church organization that they had to answer to but they kind of did that's what it's weird i mm. just think there was like there because there's this church above our church with a bishop and 
so it had the understanding of assemblies of God. I just think so where I'm from is actually when I was younger, uh, the part of New Jersey I'm from, South Jersey, is the, like the least churched area. Mm-hmm. So I think huh. non-denominational just was a term that more people felt comfortable going to a church mm-hmm. because they didn't understand church words, right? So right. it's like, yeah. oh, this church is non-denominational. Now, if you said, oh, this church was Assemblies of God, Kojic, then I feel like less people would come to the church. So the yeah. church I grew up in, it was like people wore skirts. We weren't allowed to wear pants. Not allowed to listen to secular music. Praying in tongues, like very. Yeah, you guys had the name of non-denominational, but like none of the perks of being non-denominational, which is usually yeah. like that looser grip, oh, yeah. no less loose, doctrine, no looseness. Yeah. Um, very structured. No boyfriend and girlfriend. It was like you're courting this person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, wow, that's what you I'm went saying. to a conservative. It's yeah. very, but it's weird. It was conservative, but it was like very much. I mean, in respect to the church I grew up in, it was. It wasn't middle class it was very like lower income minorities right mm-hmm. so when, when you when i think of conservatives conservatism now i think of like rich people that are typically you know the, the source of power yeah, yeah and these were not these were i felt like our church really targeted more oppressed people and mm. people that were a bit this disenfranchised so now that i am grown and am considered well and truly lost by many of the flock from whence i wandered I see just how particular my brand of Christianity was, and it remains foreign to many, even to those with a religious background. I am somewhat fascinated by the theological DNA that gave me life, and I believe in order to understand the context of much of what we will discuss with JD, it begs a dollop of explanation. I recently had this early childhood memory pop back up into my mind. You ever have that happen? Some memory you haven't thought about in decades just emerges out of your subconscious like a -a whack-a-mole, and your brain goes, hey, that was weird, huh? Anyway, good luck trying to be normal. See you when you have another recurring dream about your teacher being mad at you for forgetting your umbrella. I must have been about four or five. Old enough to remember, but not old enough to understand. I'm lying on the floor next to my mom. My dad is on the other side of her. We are on a stage in a big church, and we are surrounded by people laying their hands on us, praying in many tongues. I cautiously open my eyes, knowing prayer is ongoing, and I turn my head to see my mom. She has tears running down her cheeks, but she seems serene. I whisper, are you okay, mama? She barely opens one eye and says, I'm okay, Dee, just stay still. My guess is this memory is from a service my dad probably spoke at when we were fundraising to continue our missions work in Thailand. Recounting that now, that sounds weird as hell, but for most of my young life, that all seemed incredibly normal. That's because I was raised Pentecostal. Pentecostal Evangelical, to be exact, which is the specific brand of Christian the Assemblies of God is, the branch from which I sprouted. Being surrounded by people laying on hands in prayer, loud heavenward yells of penitent gibberish, the cries for the Holy Spirit to fall like fire over a multitude of worshipers, some with hands stretched towards the sky in a show of surrender, many just sobbing heaps face down on the floor. As a child, I understood that if you were praying real good, you'd start crying, and if you were praying real, real good, you'd fall down. I remember being about seven years old and having a children's pastor pray for me. After about three minutes of the very best praying for forgiveness over sins and brokenness a seven-year-old could drum up, I whispered to the pastor, I'm going to lay down now. He asked confused, do you feel okay? It took everything in me not to just say, yeah, man, I'm just doing the part that comes next. Cut to the chase, Lego." 
The terms we are using, such as Pentecostal and Evangelical, are all relatively similar theological terms for a few different historical evolutions. Evangelicals came first. They sprouted up in the United States and Europe around the mid to late 1800s with a knack for bold, brash orations centered on God's glory and man's fallenness. They got their name because of their passion for, you guessed it, evangelizing. They believe the Bible is literally God's word and it's their responsibility to get the word out. Generally, when you think of the modern conservative American church, much of the time, you're thinking of this. These boundaries get really murky though, because evangelicalism in America includes anything from button-down Baptists to those hip urban megachurches we've so thoroughly discussed. Pentecostalism, on the other hand, takes all that biblical literalism and conservative morality and laces it with some transcendental mysticism, and let me tell you, it's a party. Pentecostalism gets its name from a story in the Bible in which followers of Jesus were all praying in an upper room shortly after JC got murked. He also allegedly had already come back to life before he ascended into heaven and was like, good luck dudes, be back soon. So all these people are praying and worshiping and they are all obviously pretty shaken up considering the past few weeks they've had. But according to the story, the Holy Spirit fell upon the room and shone like fire over all their heads and they began to pray in many tongues. So fast forward to 1901, and a minister named Charles Fox Parham in Topeka, Kansas starts teaching that the true evidence of salvation is a dramatic encounter with the Holy Spirit resulting in speaking in tongues. This is wildly contested and rejected by the majority of the established church at large. Christianity was a commitment to a set of teachings, a faith and a doctrine of theology, and was the result of a rich history of scholars and philosophers exploring its many layers. Then in 1906, William J. Seymour, a student of Parham's, who was the son of freed slaves, brought the teachings to a tiny ramshackle building in a decrepit neighborhood in downtown Los Angeles. He began speaking on the Holy Spirit and tongues, and the Azusa Street Revival began and lasted three years. People of every color, nationality, and religious background began to visit the Azusa Mission to experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and that shit took off. Pentecostalism and a faith of dramatic experience spread throughout America and beyond its shores. A faith that relied on personal experience rather than theological education had been born. I personally believe that this little history lesson is important because Pentecostalism is built on a foundation that is both mind-blowingly frustrating for outsiders and unshakably strong for practitioners. You can't really argue against someone's personal experience. I know this odd branch of faith may seem like a cultural fringe, but it's actually one of the largest forms of contemporary Christianity, and it's growing. There are currently about 279 million Pentecostals internationally, and while it remains a strong group in the United States, it is exploding in Africa, South America, and portions of Southern Asia. We're going to get into other elements of this conversation with JD on this episode, but evangelical Pentecostalism speaks to the needs of impoverished groups. You don't have to have a degree, a deep literacy of scripture, or an in-depth understanding of biblical history. You just show up at church and experience the powerful encounter of the Holy Spirit. That's a solid brand. Also, I may have stumbled onto one of the reasons JD's church was non-denominational, but basically assemblies of God. In 1911, a few years after the roots of Azusa had taken hold, a large group of about 300 ministers met in Hot Springs, Arkansas to form the very first General Council of the Assemblies of God, they were almost exclusively white, and they neglected to invite the majority of the black Pentecostal leaders of the time. What had started as a non-sectarian, racially inclusive movement in search of divine experience had officially been divided 
along the lines of the cultural majority and the oppressed and segregated. Church history keeps repeating itself. Let's see how much Davey and I have in common anyway. Growing up in the black church, primarily, you see a lot of women. You see a lot of women, and they were kind of talking about the history of that coming from the church I grew up in. It was like the mothers of the church, they got the seats. The mothers of the church were so important. My grandmother was so important. It was, it, it, it's weird, and I feel like in black church culture that the women are kind of like in charge of the stars. Uh, they love Jesus. They're the ones that show up the most, and I was watching this documentary that was talking about that comes from a place that – uh, what you didn't see in America and still don't see the way that a black woman is treated. She's treated in church, mm. the black church. The black woman is a queen. Mm-hmm. It's like they'll, they'll move anybody. They get the seats. And so I grew up in that kind of culture where it was like, it's not about the celebrity. It's not about the pretty person. It's about the mother of the church. Let's give the mother to the church to seat. It's a, it's a matriarchy. It's a very, like yeah. And it, and, but, it, but it's still led by men, but it's this respect level that you really don't see in America for black women, in my opinion. Mm hmm. where you know it didn't matter their size it didn't matter if we found out that their husband left them it's like they come to this space and they're the queen Mm -hmm. were they ever on staff or like on a stage level of leadership a lot of them were in a very i felt like a lot of the women in my church with my which my grandmother was one of them they had more influence than some of the people that were on staff to be honest yeah they were like leaders of the people they They were like the leaders of the clergy of they were leaders of the people and they were leaders of like the atmosphere you know mm-hmm. if, if you're singing and a mother in the church like made a noise you know you're killing it. <laughs> yeah <laughs> well and i think also there's that there is that thing of you know the there is this element this southern element especially yeah. that exists in white southern culture too okay but the um the, like the the women in knitting circles sort of yeah. being able to turn public opinion and okay. being able to like begin to feed grassroots messaging to other people in the church how are we feeling about certain things or certain people yes like a lot of that is happening on a non-stage level i agree with him yeah i got that What was the breakdown of the church? Was it primarily African-American? Was it mixed? Was it Asian? Was it? You know, it was Asian, bro. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what Jersey's like. (laughs) I mean, look at me. It was all Korean church. That would be awesome. Uh, No, it was primarily black. It was primarily black church. Um, I mean, most people where I'm from are are Dominican, Mm Afro-Latina, which, you know, Puerto Rican. So it was black, Puerto Rican, Afro-Latina, Dominican. Okay. That's like the makeup of where I'm from. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Are you doing music when you're at this church, when you're a little kid? When does music (sighs) enter the picture for you? Keep me on track. Uh, (laughs) You know, so my dad and my mom, especially my mom, was in a very musical family. So actually my uncle was the worship leader at the church. Um, And my aunt was my music teacher at my school. So, like, I really wasn't – I didn't grow up being, like, the singer. I kind of grew up shy. And I think my dad – which I love my dad because he kind of knew I can sing and he knew I was into music, but he just kind of respected me at church. I would show up. I would, I actually did the camera because really? that's what, yeah. Like no one believes that I'm an introvert, but like, I feel like the camera is the best way to like, no one, no one talks to the camera person at church. I was mm-hmm. a camera operator at APU. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like you just work the camera and you show up and then you leave. And so I did that for years. And then I think my uncle and my aunt kind of encouraged me to, 
my my parents did too, but they definitely took their time, and I felt like people just were like, oh, we heard you sing at the school thing, maybe, you know, mm-hmm. sing in the choir. So then I started to and started to travel. My so you would still perform, like, in school, but just not in... Uh, I think it's so weird, like... It's embarrassing, but yeah, I would still like perform, but I didn't want music to be my narrative when I was growing up. Huh. I think because my, to be honest, like once you meet my family or once people meet them, I actually think my family could have been the like famous as the Jackson 5. I feel like I'm talented, but in comparison to like my whole family, I feel like I'm just like one of them. So Mm. growing up, I was like, oh, well, like I can do this, but like my uncle is a fantastic singer. Yeah, you're kind of growing up in like an interesting sort of pressure cooker situation exactly. in terms of public opinion. Your For dad sure. is a pastor. Your exactly. uncle is leading worship. Your mom exactly. is like a matriarch in this church. Yeah. So it kind of makes sense that you would sort of retreat For almost sure. out of like, I, how am I possibly going to like make an impression? Yeah. My dad really felt called to Africa, and that was a random shift. It was really... I felt like I can't speak for my mom or other people. It was tough for me because you had had this, like you were saying, it was kind of this understanding of a, a family and the same thing. And all of a sudden your dad is like so passionate about another country. How old were you? Uh, well, when my dad first started getting excited about Africa, I was nine. Mm-hmm. And so, and mm-hmm. my dad is not like a missionary in the way of like, oh, we're going to do a little mission trip. He's like, about to get thrown in jail kind of mission. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just like going to territories like he doesn't fully yeah, understand. Yeah, he's smuggling Bibles and Pringles cans and stuff like that. <laughs> yes. I mean, or, or just like teaching and equipping and like, you know, challenging witch doctors and stuff because that's what he yeah, is. I feel more called to. So when we were nine, uh, me and my parents and other families, we went to South Africa. So what my dad would do is he was, my dad would like live there and then my family would visit our parents. I don't know if yours was that way. Mm -hmm. And then if it was like during school, we would have to be tutored and we would have to go to like this like weird kind of like missionary school. Um, Long story short, that was a really tough transition. And I think because of that initially, me and my mom came back to the States. How long did you try to rough it out down there? Uh, my dad still is there. My dad still oh, has really? a house there. Yeah, he like comes back, but like, so it's been. It's like he he never like left. That's his thing. Um, but I think the transition back was kind of around. I would say like thirteen. He kind of stopped going. He used to go all the time, mm-hmm. and we used to go all the time. And then about, I think he really wanted to grow the church in New Jersey. And then all of a sudden, I think it was around like 16 or 17, he moved to Kenya. Got a house out there, had staff. Are your parents still together? Yeah, yeah. So they're just like, let's just live across. I think what I value about my parents are their whole people that are married. Mm. And that's why I'm probably single. Is because like my mom's a whole person. (laughs) You should have had a less healthy marriage modeled. And then you'd be better (laughs) off. You probably wouldn't be single. They're not codependent at all. They're like best friends. But like literally like if my mom is like going on a trip. I feel like my dad misses her, but like they operate in their own spaces. Like they don't really, but if my dad is like, Hey, I really need my wife. Like then my mom, now that I'm older and I'm an adult, like my mom can be in Kenya for how many ever months she wants. But when I was younger, I felt like it was important. I don't think my dad wanted me to like be out of school. And that's, I don't uh, know if you're a situation. Cause to make a long story short, I had a horrible experience in South Africa. I was like called a monkey when I was young 
Like it was so. Yeah, what year were you in South Africa? I was, it was like two years after a party. I was about yeah, to say. It's not a great time. I was so like, was, I'm trying to line up this timeline. And, and what I love about my parents is like they remember it and they believed me. And I remember an instructor. And they didn't, I don't think they meant any harm. It did come from a place that an instructor should never say to a child, look at you, you little monkey, right? That's literally what was said. Oh, it was your teacher. It was a teacher. <laughs> and I remember going back and I didn't think anything of it. I just didn't understand why the other kids weren't being called monkeys. We were all clowning around the same way. And when I brought that to my parents I think they understood like okay we're not going to call everything racist but this might not be the environment where he will flourish I've been lost losing hours watching the smoke from city towers I think my parents just took the reins and then it was like back to the states yeah and I yeah so my story is a little different than yours it it's similar in the sense of like my dad was like a full missionary like mm-hmm. there would be large spans of time love you dad but i didn't see my dad yeah and everyone made it not normal and i was like oh like my dad's gonna come back at this point but everyone else was like wait when's the last time you saw your dad and i'm like i don't know he's in india or he's whatever and then he right. would literally fly us out and we would live with them and then school started again and it was like back to the States. So you'd like, you'd spend time abroad in like small little chunks. We would, yeah. It's a really disruptive way to spend your childhood. Cause I mean, I spent large swaths of time overseas, but I mean, when I was living in Romania, like I spent my high school years in Romania, I would come back to America to like work during the summer. Yeah. But like otherwise home was in Romania. My parents were in Romania. I was in Romania. Yeah. As opposed to this sort of like back and forth. It was a back and forth. Do you, yeah. do you feel, and I only ask because I feel like I'm still having to like deal with some of my upbringing as a 30 year old man. But do you, are, do you feel like you've had to like work through some of this stuff? Has this, um, has this like apparated its way into like certain portions of your adult life where you're like, ah, that's like, I can see how that's because of this weird upbringing I had Ooh. that I'm having to work through this now. He's good. Um, yeah, I would say. Sorry to get all Diane no, Sawyer like on you. Wow, <laughs> and also the use of apparated. Yeah. I might have just made it up. I think it's from Harry Potter. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> I'm not even smart enough. To, it like literally went over my head. Um, you know, I here's what I say. I tr- I'm trying to be as understanding because I I actually have a great relationship with my parents at this point, and we we kind of always have, but I did have to process things, and I feel like they've done so great at like understanding that that was my perspective one thing i do feel like a trait that i have is i never feel steady like i'm like i'm in la one week and i'm in new york next week it's because i felt like i saw my dad really live his purpose to be honest the most when he was in africa like but he loves people so much and he loves my mom and he loves my family where i felt like new jersey was a part of the story but like so he was trying to make it all work. I mean, we didn't even get to the part where we like lived in Nashville. You know what I mean? Like we literally, you know, my dad was passionate about Nashville. It's like, cool. Like, I guess we're, we're you know, and he, the core of it was always New Jersey. So he wasn't like uprooting us. Like mm-hmm. my grandmother was in New Jersey. His family's in New Jersey. But there was this energy of like, oh, cool. This is what this is what my dad's passionate about today mm. or this, you know, so. I'm like that. I'm like, oh, this like New York is where it's at. Mm-hmm. And then my friends are like, dude, like, you know what I mean? Like, where do you live? Um, and so I actually respect my dad because I feel like he stayed true to himself. You give me faith. So growing up when I was about 
12 or 13, it was like a big traditional, not traditional, but like Kurt Franklin type of choir. Loved it. Yeah, Kurt that Franklin. was on in my parents' house a lot. <laughs> so it was like we would sing Kurt Who Franklin Who doesn't songs. sing but wins Grammys? <laughs> I, know, I right? don't understand well, no, that. Because he's a composer. Kurt Franklin's like making the songs on the piano. But I feel like he wins them for the performance of them, not for I the I know, I know. Yeah. And then in the he's album, the he's like, Jobs come on, orchestra, sing it now. He's, and he's you're like, a, you have not right. sung he's anything. Steve Jobs, though. Like, they wouldn't be anything without him composing. But so I'm sorry. Steve Jobs is the Kirk Franklin of Apple. I'm sorry. Let yeah. me correct my <laughs> There you go. Uh, yeah. Correct. Yeah, Such yeah, a white thing for you to have left with. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so basically it was like a smaller Kirk Franklin choir and um, my uncle would compose and my mom as well. She writes music. So again, it's like I basically would just do what they wanted me to do. Your guys' church <laughs> yeah. was performing original worship we music? Were. For yeah. real? Yeah. That's <laughs> rare. Like that, I like. I have Shit. never seen... You're like every church I've ever been to is yeah. like doing Hillsong stuff. I never heard of Hillsong till I finished college. Mm. But well, that's fast until you got until you got around them white folks. This is true. <laughs> Hillsong is a do big love deal. Some Hillsong. Although Mosaic, I remember that was the first church I'd ever been to. Where I'm like, they're singing original songs. Yeah, that well, uh, that for me, yes, that was true. the first See, time I I'd ever seen opposite it. Opposite, where like every church I went to sang original songs. Like growing up, we didn't we sang original songs. We didn't sing other people's. Songs. I can't think. My of church sing- just up- started singing other people's songs. <laughs> One of the people we had on the podcast a few years ago is a guy named Barry Taylor, who was the sound engineer for ACDC back in the day, but then had this crazy spiritual experience, and then he became a professor at seminary, and he teaches on theology and music, and I took a course from him. We went to South by Southwest. And he's all about music being like the most, one of the most spiritual acts. And he was, yeah. he's like, he would always joke because like his counterpart with this guy named Cutter that we've also had in the podcast who taught about film. And he's like, film is a godless art. He's like, if you thank God in an Oscar speech, it's really weird and uncomfortable, but everyone at the Grammys thanks God. Yeah. And he's like, music ties you to something spiritual. It does. Naturally. And yeah. I think that's what I, one of the things I missed about the mega church we all met at was like, the music was kind of the thing that captivated, I think, a lot of people. You came in, not only was it like dark and there's like smoke machines and lights going all over the place, but it was like the music did lead you to a place where like yeah. whether or not you believe in all this stuff, it's going to sure. make you feel like you could write that novel, shoot that movie, yeah. paint that masterpiece. You could do something yeah. and there's something benevolent controlling the universe. And the problem was the disconnect between uh, the rest of the logistics of yeah. the church operation. But that music always has some weird purity to it like some some interesting connection but what barry the reason i bring him up is he would always say that like if lyrics are the only thing driving your message in music then it's propaganda whoa and i couldn't understand that wow i mean he told me that when i was like 24 this is like six years ago and like meeting people like you and i'm just like (laughs) but it blew my mind i was like wait what do you mean because i was still in that church mindset of like the lyrics are everything like the lyrics are calling out to God. Like you read Psalms, like so much of that stuff was musical, but I'm curious, like what you think about that. Cause I mean, you I write your own. Yeah. yeah. As a songwriter, I agree. I mean, we, you know, we don't know all the words to thriller, but we can hum. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah. Like we remember that. And so I feel like writing music, it's like the melody is going to stick. I always test things out on like my cousins or my nephews mm-hmm. or nieces it's like i play them a song and if they're bopping to it they should be able to understand it you know um but i agree the with feeling you. you're trying to convey and i feel like we are in an era i'm just gonna sound like date myself and sound old but we are in an era where a lot of music is propaganda 
Mm. It's a lot of videos with these images and that's great. And there's a lot of messages, but it's like, um, the heart isn't there. Yeah. It's like, cool. Like to me, I just feel like pick your thing and really mean it. And that's why I love Kendrick or I, I gravitate more to hip hop. Cause they do that. It's like they pick their thing and they mean it with conviction and the imagery and the music and the melody, it all kind of creates this world versus like, you're going to have this propaganda, but then like, the person that sponsored your video is also funding the thing that you're against. Mm. And I'm like, that's a contradiction. That whole art piece is a contradiction because those people that you're against and your lyrics are paying you to do this. And mm. essentially all the money goes right back into their pocket. Go unspoken. Do you feel like um, to write music that is not propaganda? Yeah or uh, unhelpful to make put it gently that you can't come from you can't come from a like a majority culture you can't come from the non-oppressed groups because all you know is the propaganda or you know what yeah. i mean that's not that's a messy way of phrasing it but i had a professor that was basically like yeah. profits only come from the margins Whoa. and so i was like well i'm white does that mean like I can never be prophetic? And he was essentially like, well, yeah, basically. Whoa, hot take. I don't necessarily agree with him because I think that like I listen to Chris Stapleton and some of his per perspectives <laughs> no, seriously, well, are like very yeah. prophetic. I mean, Bob Dylan, the times are changing. Like yeah. that's one of the most powerful songs ever. Uh, I yeah. think he's Jewish. Bob Dylan. I will have to fact check that. What Google. is what is um, George Michael? George Michael, like freedom. Oh, God. I bet you're right. George Michael LGBTQ. is English. Yeah, and yeah. if anybody has been oppressed, it is the English people. They lost a world of colonies, <laughs> and they've never really bounced back from that. But like, okay, so yeah, maybe my example is because now I'm like, okay, well, George Michael. I could be totally LGBTQ. wrong about Bob Dylan, but I, I, th I thought for sure. He probably is. You're probably right. Um, yeah, I'm, he's Jewish. Okay, well, because he was born Robert Allen Zimmerman, son of Abraham whoa, and Betty Zimmerman. Zimmerman. Abraham he's and Betty Zimmerman. Zimmerman. Yeah, I love the Zimmerman. So he's full on prophet, like in the he's in the a classic full, he sense. He is a full on prophet. <laughs> um, I don't know. I I definitely feel like we'll just use Chris Stapleton. Then I don't know. Maybe he's Jewish. I don't think so. But uh, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> the Jewish country singer. <laughs> like if you listen to some of his records. I really just think it has to do with what you want to create and taking responsibility for what that looks like in the world. That's all I do uh, yeah. is for right now it's joy just because I feel like it doesn't mean I don't struggle with depression. It doesn't mean that I want people to clap to all my songs. It just means that like, Hey, like there's a bunch of people doing really sad stuff and they're killing it mm -hmm. and I love it. But I think to be a prophet doesn't mean you all, all always have to be like prophesying about doom and gloom, you know? You can also yeah. be prophesying like about like joy and wisdom and celebration. Yeah. And so I just think that's like for me, it's like choose the voice that you want to be. And like I always insert irony in it. You know what I mean? I'm not going to like testify is a very ironic song. I think it's it's very growing up in black culture. We have a tendency to complain positively. <laughs> so like you'll go what to a church well so like I, I would go to like my church growing up and it's like cool like you know colton give us a testimony and like and you'd be like oh i just got married to this beautiful woman you know and then you like you know 
there's a jab in there about your wife, you know, or like <laughs> there's a jab about like, oh, I got this great job, even though sometimes blah, blah, blah. You know, it's yeah. like culturally, I feel like whenever I'm in these like black church spaces, it's like most of what we're saying, they're actually like not happy with that circumstance. And that's what testifies about it. It's like, oh, well, like all these things are actually not going wrong. But like that's the part is like baby's been good to me. It's like, yo, but this lady is never going to leave me. Like, all these things are happening that's bad, but, like, I still got my girl. I still got this money. Basically, she's a gold digger. That's, like, that was, like, the backstory of the of the song. And so it's, like, I try to present stories, but kind of making people dance so they don't really hear the mm. cultural depth, like, initially. And they're, like, oh, that's true. Like, when they, like, dissect the lyrics, like, oh, yeah, that's true. That's what it, That's what it's about. It's about me going to this church and literally there was this guy that was like literally complaining about his back pains, his wife, his job. And they were like, told him to stand up for a testimony. And I'm like, wait, where's the good part of this? I'm not really sure. I love that you <laughs> like compared and contrasted you and Chris Stapleton. Oh no. <laughs> I like Please, that's embarrassing. I, I love Chris Stapleton. It's no <laughs> comparison. It's like, he's like well, up just, here yeah, high yeah. up as far as, yeah. And I'm just like lowly, just like wanting to be. Oh, I don't know about that. I was just thinking about like <laughs> bearing your truth. Versus like just telling me exactly what's up. Which is country music is like, here's exactly what's up. You're well, you never like, drunk deeper mood, you know. You have to hear drunken prayer. Hmm. Listen to Chris Stapleton's drunken prayer. Shit, man, I'm going to have to go. Friendship, millionaire. Like, you got to look at the lyrics. You're like, man, you love Chris Stapleton. <laughs> <laughs> you love Chris yeah. Stapleton. This, I love this, a no, lot of you know what I think, you Podcast know what I think episode is, is Chris Stapleton with Davey. I hope he <laughs> hears it. Well, what's scary about hip hop, just in my opinion, and I could be wrong, is it's opposite where you hear a lot of prophetic talk. Because mm -hmm. if you're really poor and you're in the projects, you're not going to want to listen to a song about being poor in the projects. Mm. You'll hear a story, but it better come from that dude that's a millionaire now. Right. And how he got out. Exactly. Okay. So it's hard where it's just like, like one of my favorite songs is there's a song, uh, it's like, Big Bank Take Little Bank. It's by YG. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I listened to it, and I listened to, like, just Money Trees, all these songs when I was, like, really poor. Like, as a songwriter, I'm like, Big Bank Take Little Bank. I'm, like, seeing this to, like, tell myself one day I will not have to, like, be in line at a coffee shop, like, checking my account to make sure I don't overdraft. Yeah. And, like, I feel like a lot of – I can't speak for all black people, but specifically creatives that are black – we try to create music that people that want to be in the space. It's like aspirational. It's aspirational. It's very much like, okay, big, big take. Like we don't have, we don't have, you know, Migos. It's like, we're not balling like them, but we like listening to stir fry and you know. And yeah. Well, there is like there, there is something to that narrative of like, I started with nothing and look at me now. Exactly. Like that is an appealing narrative. It is. I'm curious. Because the thing that gets the most flack, I think, in Christian church is prosperity gospel. Yes. Dudes with jets, pastors telling you God wants you to have, like, the latest pair of Yeezys, all yeah. that shit. Where do you – how do you – what's your hot take on that as a black man in America, like, looking at the heat yeah. that prosperity gospel gets? Especially um, with, like, preachers and sneakers and all that shit blowing up. A good up. hot take. Honestly, I – Okay. Here's what I'll say. I, I'm trying to say it not sound ignorant. I do feel like the people that push that back the most 
I didn't really hear about that until I went into like mega church spaces with predominantly white culture because I think the prosperity gospel and like God wanting you to prosper, the church I grew up in, like we needed that. And I felt like my friends needed that. My friend's moms needed that. Like it just, there were tough times and there were a lot of people who their homes were being foreclosed. And so that Sunday it's like they needed that message. And I feel like if someone were to come to my church and judge my dad's message about what God has in store for you and God wants you to have the best cars and that they don't understand the culture and they don't understand who are these people that need to hear that. And I always, I really applaud my dad because I felt like he always tried to help. Like he wasn't like, Oh, I'm going to be driving a Porsche. It was like, how can everybody on this team really step up financially with their investments, owning homes. And so I think the prosperity and like you said, prosperity, wealth, gospel, I think he gets a bad rep. I grew up kind of in that culture and there were people that took advantage of it, like give so that you don't, you know, you're healthy. Like that's different, but I do feel like giving into good soil like a church that's really going to help the community ultimately does affect the community it helps the community grow there so i've seen that in my church it's like yeah like if my dad is going to go to africa or there's somebody at our church that's doing a missionary trip i'm gonna sow into the church because i feel like that is good ground and god does want in my opinion that to prosper now like individual goals are like buying jets and stuff it gets really fishy because I actually did grow up with kids where their parents would do that and they have tons of homes and I'm friends with those kids. And like, it's, it's really tough. Cause it's like, I don't really feel like God is, in, God is not involved in the sense of like, I don't think God is like, I don't like that. And I don't feel like God is like, I do like that. I think we're humans and they have large churches and those large people, those people choose to tie to that person. And those they those pastors choose to buy those shirts and choose to buy those shoes. And I just think it's our responsibility to know what we're tithing into. So I just grew up very different where, like, I knew what I was tithing into. Yeah. Where maybe the people that are saying it don't know what they're tithing into. And the people that are have the money are not telling them. I've never been in that situation. I would, like, being real, like, at the megachurch working there, like... I still tithe at the church I grew up in. I didn't tithe at that church. If I, like I didn't because I was just like, oh, I don't, I don't know where my money's going to. Um, mm. and I knew where my money would go to the church I grew up in. I knew it wasn't going to my dad because my dad didn't take a salary from the church. But also, it's like being a PK, you know the insides and outs. So I can't judge a big church assuming that that yeah. pastor's taking a salary. I don't know. Okay. I think JD's answer is a perfect example of why the term prosperity gospel evokes so many mixed reactions from people. At the start of JD's answer, he spoke about what people in his church needed to hear. He then segues into his thoughts on tithing and knowing where that money goes. This is important because the prosperity gospel is critiqued mostly on its manipulation of people's desire to get rich quickly by donating as much money as they can to the church so that God will repay their faith in even greater ways. The divine quid pro quo. Yes, squid pro ro. Which is Latin for, you got hustled. Because the only person profiting on those expectations is the well-dressed pastor on stage every Sunday asking you for more. But to be fair, the more outlandish forms of the prosperity gospel don't seem as pervasive or influential as the more subtle forms it takes on today. See, 
Back in the early 1900s, a man named Max Weber wrote a book called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. This book gave birth to a concept that has permeated evangelical, primarily white, Christian culture ever since. It's known as the Protestant work ethic, but it's essentially the notion that God has given everyone the power to become wealthy through hard work. God has given everyone the power to become wealthy through hard work. I break it down like that because it's a concept when thrown out casually gets a lot of head nods and responses like, yeah, well, uh, yeah, of course. That's because it's the spiritualized version of a notion we're all familiar with, and that's the American dream. It's capitalism on Sunday morning. You work hard, pray hard, and God, or the government, hopefully both, will reward you. Joel Osteen is one of the most popular pastors in America today. His church is in Houston, Texas, and is attended by anywhere between 35 and 50,000 people every Sunday, not to mention the 7 million viewers on live stream at home. Joel's family of four lives in a modest 17,000 square foot mansion, and he's worth a little bit over 50 million, and yes, has that private jet. God can make things happen that you could never make happen. He'll make you famous so you can use your influence not only to reach your goals so you can help others along the way. Now do your part. No more sick prayers. No more weak prayers. Get rid of that slave mentality. Go to God like it's your birthday. Woo! Nothing like a rich white guy telling you to give up that slave mentality, am I right? Side note, I always thought 50 Cent and Joel Osteen had a lot in common. The ridiculous point I'm trying to make is that there's a huge difference between encouraging hope and creating expectations, especially when you're describing the nature of God from a position defined by power and wealth. Dr. Martin Seligman pioneered the field of positive psychology. In Dr. Seligman's attempt to treat mental illness and make people's lives, well, less miserable, he found we're all living one of three lives. The pleasant life, the engaged life, and the meaningful life. The pleasant life is the most basic attempt to have a happy life. It's about having as many pleasurable activities as possible in your life and avoiding negativity or pain whenever possible. The catch is that we all get more and more numb to the same positive stimulus, like how a bowl of ice cream gets less and less pleasurable after the first bite, and if you keep eating, you're gonna get sick or just obese. Dr. Seligman also found that positive emotion is about 50% hereditary and not modifiable, which means some people are indeed just born happier. The engaged life, on the other hand, is one built on choice. This is a muscle discovered and developed over time by finding an activity that lets you get into a state of flow. And flow is actually a psychological condition. I've experienced this flow playing music, sports, and even during many of these back pew conversations. It's hard to explain, but you know it once you're in it. Dr. Seligman says the interesting thing about the engaged life that differs from the pleasant life is that a state of flow isn't characterized as feeling any positive emotion or pleasure, but rather nothing at all. Flow is about being so completely present that you can't feel because you're not analyzing anything. And finally, that brings me to the meaningful life, which is about taking the highest strengths you discovered in the engaged life and using them to belong to and in the service of something larger than yourself. And that's what the gospel and prosperity is all about. Anyway, back to JD. 
we don't have a shitload of time left, no, but we got into that. I don't know if you have any questions, maybe because you have like fresh ears to it, but we got into a lot of the comparison between the mega church that we were at and all the shit that it gets and JD being around the epicenter of so much of that drama and bullshit, but being so, I would say graceful and kind of having a lot of mercy around it. I was blown away when we had dinner last Thursday because I was like, why are you so soft on them? Is what it felt like com- by comparison to so many other people we know. And then it was like, that was the huge parallel that was fascinating. It was like, oh, because I'm going to use names here. Loki, yeah. you feel like your dad is very much like in the Irwin space. And I give grace to the mega church because they have more people. Yeah. Like, I don't know what my church would look like if my dad had thousands of people. Like, I'm, oh, my ego as a kid, I'd have probably been the worst <laughs> PK. I doubt yeah. it. I'd probably wind up like crying or something. But Well, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, again, your sense of balance goes back to this fact that you do recognize that uh, systemic injustices happen. Sure. There, There is stuff at play that is kind of large scale, but you do have this personal sense of ownership. So I think that in the context of like a megachurch situation, you just kind of distanced yourself from it. Exactly. You just sort of stepped away. Yeah. It's like once you, once, once you realize like, oh... I don't think this really jives with me yeah. on a deep level. You just stepped out. And I, I don't – and I think – I mean, I could be wrong. Do you think that – did it take something deeply painful and cataclysmic for you to step out? Or do you think you were just like, you know, I think I'm good? Um, of course, because you're in relationship with those people. And I felt like – I think a lot of people's narrative with stepping out of churches or religion or major things are like, they, they, they. For me, it was like – oh, like I have to work on so many things and I don't know if this is a space that I can work on that. That's all. You know what I mean? It was like, I need to grow. I need to become an adult. Like I need to get my ish together past spiritual things. Like I need to make money, something as basic as that. And I can't be in this space for right now in a healthy mental space because emotionally I'm connected to these people and Every relationship, whether it was my parents or the mega church or friendships or roommates, I was like, I am transitioning so like I'm transitioning so much that either you have to be like, yo, we're just going to go along for this ride. Tomorrow he could be bat ish crazy, you know, or if you're looking for that old James David, R I like R.I.P. him. You know what I mean? Like Mm. we had a good run. And so I think with that space, it was like we had a good run. Now it is the new James David, which is an adult and takes responsibility. And if he doesn't like something, he speaks up. And if he doesn't want to be in a space, he leaves. So for me, it was like, oh, cool. I can't, we, like, I can't be in this space and be like 100% myself. Therefore, it's like, love you guys. Have a good day. Have a good life. I will continue to thrive over here. <laughs> yeah, that was a great point. I'm sorry I burped into the mic while you were saying that. But I, that was something you want to communicate something you feel strongly about sharing um so for me i I grew up in church and so something that i've recently or something i heard all my life that i really didn't understand and i think it can go for anybody whether you subscribe to christianity like whatever you know but I i feel like i really always heard growing up that like to have a relationship with god and i never got it because i'm like well god isn't like an actual physical being like I can't like really have a conversation 
but I felt like just growing up in church to now being being 30, I have changed so much. So I can only really think of God in a way as how he relates to my change as well in a way where like I have to give myself space to have conversations about life and what I don't like and like actually truly have a relationship with him because I just feel like I've changed so much as a person so why would I have a relationship with an idea if I've changed and if my ideas have changed and if some of the way I view life has changed that means my idea of God would change Hmm. and it's not bad or good I just feel like I really approach day to day with God as like he like in a relationship and so I've been doing that and I felt like it's helped my relationship with God because I don't approach it from a place of like what can God do for me God is mad at me I'm doing these bad things I'm distant from God it's like oh like God is a part of this anger God is a part of this distance God is a part of this confusion because I have a relationship with God I have a relationship with my parents I have a relationship with my dad so if I'm very frustrated at my dad that is our relationship and we're working through it and so like for me getting older I'm like it's easier for me to process God in that way where it's just like, God, like I don't understand this. I feel very distant. Why, why are these people doing that? Asking questions. If I don't, you know what I mean? Like just, I've just been doing that and I felt like it's really helped me beat myself up less. It's helped me feel less non-religious, you know, to put it in the words. And so I don't know, that's just a practice of mine. And even like, I read this really quick. I read this book called, um, ah, I read it a long time ago. I know what it is. I think I told you about it when we lived together. But long story short, my dad gave it to me when I graduated college. I think it's called The Brother Lawrence. And it's just a... Do you remember who wrote it? I think Brother Lawrence. Brother Brother Lawrence Lawrence wrote it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brother Lawrence wrote it. It's called The Brother Lawrence. It's called Brother Lawrence. It's like this little book. And it's basically... What is it? Like about a... I read it a long time ago. I should have brought it up. Edit this part out. My point is... (laughs) I'm like going to Google it. When I graduated from college my dad gave me this book and it was basically about this illiterate chef or he was like a uh, washing dishes and it was like he processed god in a different way he didn't have an education he didn't understand all these deep theological things of of the god in the bible so he processed god as his best friend that was there during this like oppressive time when he was being treated horrible and being called all these names and like i think of just like the joy in that guy and how his relationship with god was probably fuller than most people that can speak multiple languages and that speak in front of thousands of people because I felt like his relationship with God was in real time with him during all of those things. And so once I read that book, it's like I get in my car and I'm like listening to this song with cuss words. I'm like, yo, God, so sorry. <laughs> this is the mood I'm in. Like, you know, I need to listen to this Nikki song. I'm feeling really, you know, whatever. <laughs> like I just approach day to day. I don't know if it, I don't know if God likes it. I don't know. But I try to like just do that and that's helped me and my understanding right now of god huh. is 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 existing in this space that knows where james treadwell is at as a 30 year old and his frustrations because if i don't voice it then i don't have a relationship with yeah. him i'm assuming he sees it from wherever we believe god resides yeah it sounds very <laughs> free like just free to be whoever you are whatever you are in the moment mm, i i mean ugh. Now I'm scared. Why? <laughs> my parents are going to listen to this and be like, sounds too free. Oh, man. I can almost guarantee you your parents aren't going to listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> they will. They listen to every podcast. That's do they I really? To, every podcast you do? They, or anything they, I do, they listen, and I have to be careful. That's why I honor them. We don't have to put this in there. 
but yeah. <laughs> I, like seriously, that would I I wish we could put the hand motion the into this. Damn, so I could have said something better, but them. basically that's what I'm saying. I just I I try to to grow in my relationship and my understanding of who God is in relation to where I'm at right now. Right. Maybe just to contextualize it, that yes. how is that different than how you related to God 15 years ago? That's a good because well, it feels like it's an important thing that you're describing this relationship. Yeah. That you're having, but I guess maybe give some context for where it was. Well, when you grow up, I grew up in church. My dad's a pastor. You hear, I mean, I've heard sermons from every pastor growing up. It's like I can quote the scripture back to them, you know. So you grow up with an understanding of who God is and what God did in the Old Testament. And God is, you know, and Jesus, who he's in relation to God. So it started to become kind of like a fairy tale or a song or like just, you know, the business, you know, the, you know, the jargon. And then I felt distant from God when I was like, Oh, I'm not living up to what people have told me or what people have described God as, or who God is or the Mm. characteristics. I was like, Oh, I'm falling so short. Like I'm drinking. I'm, it was always like action things Mm -hmm. because I felt like I wasn't bringing God into those spaces. I was like, I'm being bad. So God is, not in the space mm-hmm. yeah because i was thinking oh god's in the space of me being wholesome and me being at church and god's in the space of me like not cussing yeah where i was like nope god still hears me cussing and god still hears me complaining and god still sees me making bad decisions how can i bring him into this space being honest and being vulnerable and i just didn't grow up ever understanding that i would mm-hmm. hear my parents mm-hmm. say that but yeah you can't like understand it on that like soul gut level I did it until I became an adult and I was like oh like there's time there's the most secular time or secular Christian terms where I feel God's presence when I performed at Lollapalooza I felt like it felt like a worship service and we're like not even singing about anything spiritual and I was like I'm pretty sure God is here Hmm. because he's like because we're all in this moment together and there's joy and there's positivity and all these things, like God's a part of that as well. Dude, yeah. I love that. Everything is spiritual. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a phrase that you've heard a lot? There's a Rob Bell's pushing that a lot. Oh, I was like scared. I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that's <laughs> like that's the whole thing. dichotomy uh, that basically he's picking apart is like classic Christianity is like you have the flesh and the spirit, and they're always nice. at odds. Like, your music, David, your music is of the flesh. Like, you're talking about romance and love and that's the flesh and god has no part in that he wants spiritual things he wants praise and worship and meditation and yeah I scripture used to, i used to say like well they're a christian band or like well they're a band but they're all like christian guys but they're not a yeah. christian band like i used to make those <laughs> differentiations yeah, yeah 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 versus being like are you making something beautiful that has integrity yeah and you're like yep good there you go yeah. that's worship that is, that's spiritual sure. way, way to well, go well really quick you know you can edit this in wherever you want but there is a point that I remember maybe it was five years ago, I got invited to play, like I have a you know, very large LGBTQ fan base, right? So it's like, and black, like that's kind of the core. And I remember getting asked to perform at this, uh, it was like a human orientation thing that was a campaign HBO was doing. And I remember talking to my dad about it. And my dad was like, well, if you believe that like God is on the inside of you, like then God will be at that space. like." It's not a thing of like, oh, like I can't do this thing is not spiritual. It was like, no, like, like God is in you and God is in that space because you're there because other people that love God are there. And like, that was a long, that was not a long time ago, but it was like early when I like was like, oh, you're right. Like I can literally plan these spaces. And if like, I'm not 
obviously like hopefully I'm not saying propaganda about like smacking bees and all this shit, but or I gotta start. <laughs> but like Oh dude, you can swear. As long <laughs> as I'm like saying in my opinion things that bring life, that's what I'll say. Yeah. Is like I do feel like in those spaces God is there because like my goal and my energy is like forward movement and positive thought and like making people feel joy. So I felt like when my dad told me that it kind of like took off pressure I felt from him and my mom mm. and the church to be like you only got to do church gigs or you only got to do like you can't do LGBTQ gigs right. you can't do you know black lives matter gigs like you won't, you know so I feel like that really freed me to think those thoughts of like God is with me God is on the inside of me and so if I perform anywhere it's like God's presence is there I dig it Sorry. cool Dude, like where it. can uh, where can we find you online? You just had a, an EP is out. I did yeah. Yeah, man, I'm digging the clips of the video on Insta. It's, it's been fun. Um, yeah, you can find me at www.musicbydavy.com. Pretty much, if you go on Google, search "music by Davy." Unfortunately, Davy is also a city in Florida, so okay. we've been having some trouble with that. But if you do "music by Davy," it'll pop up on Instagrams "music by Davy." On Twitter, it's "music by Davy." Love Hence, it. Awesome. Dope. Well, dude, thank you so much. Thanks for coming and sharing your time and talking with us. We really appreciate it, dude. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate what you guys are doing, and I apologize for being late. <laughs> not delete that. We weren't going to tell anybody <laughs> yep. that, that you were late. But it's now it's in the good. episode. I'm a musician. I'm always late. <laughs> dude, thanks so All much. All right. Thanks, Katie.